Well, our scripture today uh, is a little intense. When I read it, I kind of wanted to see if we had a budget enough to do like some really cool, massive like posters that would do chronology of the end of times. And we could, I once taught a Bible study on the book of Revelation and we had some artists that were trying their best to like encapsulate literally all the things that were being written. And we had some really gnarly uh, drawings that came out of that. And so whenever we get into apocalyptic uh, literature, I think it can be uh, incredibly challenging. We've all, well, maybe not all of us, but many of us may have experienced uh, places where that was used to try to incite a lot of fear, uh, to create a lot of anxiety, uh, whether that's about your own relationship with God or about our own care for the world and how much we should be invested in relationships and what's going on here and now, because if all of this destruction is going to happen, then what does it really mean? And so I, my first apocalyptic sort of encounter um, was not primarily through the church, probably because until I was a teenager, I was not really connected to the Christian tradition in any significant way. And so my first apocalyptic encounter was in the early 90s when my parents took me, I probably was like eight or nine years old, and I'm not questioning their parenting choice. I love my mom and dad, but maybe I'm questioning their parenting choice, though I do love my mom and dad, uh, to... The movie theaters was one on Riverside to see Terminator 2 Judgment Day. <laughs> now, I was born in the early 80s, and so if you grew up in the 80s, then you grew up in this time of, like, heightened concerns of the Cold War. And, yeah, uh, you have a lot of already built-in anxiety about what's going to happen in this Cold War. Is there going to be a nuclear war you know, that was already something that was in the back of my mind. But then I go and see Terminator 2, and as you can see on the slide, there's this moment where Sarah Connor, one of the protagonists, uh, is having this dream that she sees these kids who are playing in a playground, and then all of a sudden a nuclear bomb goes off in the middle of Los Angeles, and you see the flash, and this wave of destruction is coming towards them, and she's banging on the chain link fence trying to get their attention because she doesn't want anything to happen to them. And then, of course, the wave just encapsulates them, and it goes back, and all you see is the playground equipment on fire, which is, you know, pretty eerie. And then you do see the wave literally come and strip all of the, everything off of her skeleton. And so there's just the skeleton there linking. And eight or nine-year-old me was not really ready for any of that. <laughs> I had never really thought about my mortality before then, not really considered what that would mean. And this was the first, so I was like, oh, wow. Like, judgment could be coming. I wasn't concerned about, like, in a religious way. I was just like, we might really figure out a way to kill ourselves, that our own technology might turn against us and how frail life can be. And I think when we look at the way Jesus talks about the apocalypse and the way Jesus sort of juxtaposes his way, his practice, his life against the rest of the world and our addiction to violence and to greed and the ways that we self-sabotage, 
What we really see from Jesus in this apocalypse is not so much this vision that God is this judge coming back to say, you all have been terribly wrong and I am going to lay down the law right now. But instead, that left to our own devices, the injustice, the evil that we find, the greed that we take, the ways we've consumed so much within our planet, the ways that we continue to wage war against one another, that if left unchecked, if we don't find a way to break this cycle, if we continue to scapegoat one another, if we continue to allow our desires to go unchecked, then it's going to have this apocalyptic ending. Jesus starts out in our passage. He's speaking in the temple, verse 5. And he sees other people are saying, oh, look at this temple, how wonderful it is, beautiful stones and the gifts dedicated to God. And Jesus says to them, as for these things that you see, the days will come when not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. They're looking at this significant center and symbol of their faith, right? This was at a time when most people were probably not literate. And so how do you understand and practice and experience your faith and your tradition? You go to a place, you experience the rituals. And this was at a time when though the Hebrew people were being oppressed by Rome, Rome at least had invested a lot of money in the infrastructure of the temple. So the temple was like living large. This was like probably the best the temple has ever looked. And they're kind of admiring the trappings that Rome has handed them in this temple. You know, let let us be your oppressor as long as we kind of make the cage at least a little bit gilded for you there. Uh, And they're admiring it. And and Jesus just says to them, he's looking at this like there's not going to be one stone left upon each other. I think that's significant, not only because in reality, in history, that would eventually happen. Now, by the time the Gospel of Luke was written, it's likely that was already in the rearview mirror, that the temple had already, uh, because of an insurrection, Rome came down hard and destroyed the temple. It's likely that that had already happened by the time the Gospel of Luke was penned, So I think it's important both because literally that would happen, but I think also in this age where we are given to talking about deconstruction and what does it look like uh, to question the faith that we have been handed or that others have built for us or that we have co-participated in building, you have this literal or this metaphorical deconstruction of the very center of their faith. And Jesus seems to be pointing to this isn't it. If we have become obsessed with spectacle, with pomp, with power, if we have allowed ourselves to just take the status quo of being oppressed and of buying into that violence is the way that we make things happen in the world, then it is going to lead to us returning violence for violence and it's going to destroy us and ultimately it will destroy our world. So one of the things for apocalyptic anchoring in these times of unsettling uh, that I want to suggest we find in this text is that Jesus prioritized human needs over religious power. Now, 
To show you why I think I see that happening, I'm going to go back a little bit just before our passage in the lectionary begins. So just the first four verses before it, we have this story. While Jesus is teaching in the temple, apparently this probably happened, or maybe he's just telling a parable, not exactly sure, but it says, Jesus looked up and saw rich people putting their gifts into the treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. He said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For all of them have contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in all she had to live on. So right before we have this story of Jesus saying, this temple, we're gonna, it's gonna all be torn down. Not one stone's gonna be left on each other. We have this story of this woman who has next to nothing to live on. And the very last thing she has, she gives to the temple. And there is a reading of this. I have no intent of trying to judge uh, this woman in any way. But there is a reading that's common of this that would sort of say, be like this woman. Isn't this great? Like, even though she had very little, she was willing to give her last thing so that Christopher could buy a $6 coffee. You know, this is a really good thing to be like her. And again, I'm not at all questioning her heart or her intention, but I think the larger picture, especially if you look at the way that Jesus talks about widows in the Gospel of Luke, just before this, he has critiqued the scribes and the religious leaders because he says, essentially, you are ripping widows off. You are taking all that they have just for your own largesse. And I think that part of what we can then begin to see here is that Jesus in part is critiquing this temple because it is built on the exploitation of others. That it is in the name of faith and religion and theology willing to prioritize that over people's own humanity, their worth, their creation in the image of God, their basic needs. And Jesus is saying we need to tear all of that kind of thinking down. We should never use religion in a way that would seem to besmirch the image of God in someone else or that would cause someone else to feel anything other than beloved by God and beloved by the communities that they are in. And so when we look at widows in Luke's gospel, just a real quick run through through the places where they're mentioned. We see Anna, the prophet, at the very beginning, you might remember this, we'll get to this in the Advent season oftentimes, uh, who is this prophet who has been a widow for most of her life, and she's just been praying and fasting in the temple, and she finally gets to see the Messiah, Jesus, as a baby, and she praises God and bears witness to Jesus' redemption. Jesus, when he is doing his own sort of inaugural speech for the reign of God as his ministry is beginning, mentions that there are plenty of widows in our own insider culture, but actually, you know, when the prophet Elijah was going to look, he surpassed all of those and went to the outsider, to this widow at Zarephath in Sidon, and lifts this up as this incredible thing, this 
transcending the insider-outsider divide to help those who have been marginalized. We see in chapter seven of Luke, a grieving widow, her son, who is her last family member that she could depend on for any kind of sustenance in the world has died. And Jesus sees her grief and he brings her son back to life. In chapter 18 of Luke, we see a widow who is persistently demanding justice from an unjust judge. Now, again, we tend to think of judges, maybe it says a lot about our own legal system uh, as being these really evil, corrupt people. But in the Hebrew Bible, the idea of a judge was meant to be the person that sets things right. They're the person that you go to. It would be sort of like the Marvel superhero that you're, you're going to be the one who's going to actually make sure that this world that so far has been slanted towards the rich and towards those who are going to exploit and hurt other people towards those who are greedy and evil, you're going to be the one to make sure that everyone gets their fair share, their fair say. But this is a story that Jesus tells about a widow who's going to an unjust judge, but she will not relent. And ultimately that judge does the right thing. That judge gives justice. There's also the Sadducees, these religious leaders that try to trap Jesus. And they ask this question, but in the, about this widow who keeps trying to get married to different people, but they all keep dying before they, she can have another child. And he's like, so, so what's going to happen when we get to the resurrection of the dead? Who's going to be her husband? And they don't care at all about the widow that's made up in the story, right? She's just this prop for them to make their theological point. And then we have in chapter 20, um, I've, I've already referenced these widows who have their houses devoured by religious scribes. So we get all sorts of looks at different types of widows in the Gospel of Luke. And what we learn, I think, can be twofold for us in the apocalypse. One is following the widow's example. We see some of these widows who are praying and fasting, even in the middle of great tumults and injustice and uprisings. They are remaining not only connected and anchored to God through their practice of prayer to sustain them, to help them to endure and to persist, but we also see a widow who's like, I'm prayed up and I am going out to get my justice. I am going to demand it. I am going to advocate for it. I am not only going to pray, but I'm going to also act in that way. And then we can also follow Jesus' posture towards widows. We see going the extra mile to be present to the outsider. We see empathy for those who are grieving, especially the marginalized and opposing systems of exploitation. So I think we can both learn from the gospel of Luke during apocalyptic times, both how to be like widows and also how to be like Jesus in his response to them. Another way we can be anchored uh, during the apocalypse is to welcome our fears over projecting them. One of my mentors likes to say that fear wants to hang itself on someone's bones. And often we do that. We try to scapegoat someone. It's might be your spouse, it might be your child, it might be your parent, it might be your boss, it could be those people, whatever it is, right? We're always looking to hang our fear on someone and then we begin to blame them and to project on to them. And welcoming our fear doesn't necessarily 
mean that we're just like, okay, I'm going to just go watch a ton of horror films and just sort of <laughs> endure all of that. But I do think it means we become curious about what's really behind this. Is there some unmet need or insecurity that's there? And perhaps it's very real. It could be something that's very present to us. Well, how do we then lean into community and to one another to think what's going to be able to anchor me and hold me? In our Embodying Justice uh, workshop that we did this past Wednesday, uh, one of the practices we did is we talked about the things that we were carrying and we passed along a string that was connected to all of us so that we could see at the end of this, right, that there's this web, this network of mutuality that's connecting us and so that none of us was holding what we were bringing to the room by ourselves. We were all collectively holding it together. That's part of what it looks like to welcome our fears, not to pretend that it's not real, but instead to figure out a way to not be overcome by it. So how might I endure in the presence of this fear without being overcome by it? How might you endure with whatever the things are that keep you up at night, whether it's the state of the economy or of our political world or the wars that do seem to rage on incessantly, if it's what we are doing to the climate and it seems like it's almost past the point of no return, how might you endure in the presence of this fear without being overcome by it? When I was in Portland uh, about a month ago, I got to spend time with my goddaughter, Tegan. She's amazing. And for Halloween, she wanted to be a witch. And uh, I loved it. And there was a Halloween parade that I got to see her being her witchiest self in. And it's wonderful. She's casting spells. She's loving it. She's having a lot of fun. And I was talking to her parents, and they were just talking about wanting to reclaim this idea of witch for her, that she would not think of witch as something that is to be feared or to be evil, but to see it as perhaps a way that women can find empowerment and can have fun and leaning into that aspect of it. And it's a beautiful way that I saw her parents taking something that perhaps the culture would have demonized and instead saying, we're going to take the fear out of this. And then the third way that I want to suggest we can anchor ourselves during the apocalypse is through creative nonviolence rather than destroying our enemies. In the passage, it's talked about during this apocalyptic time, people are going to get persecuted and arrested. And so it says in verse 13, make up your minds not to prepare your defense in advance, for I will give you words and a wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to withstand or contradict. I don't think that Jesus is advocating that we just shoot from the hip. Like I remember one of the most frustrating times for me ever was when I was co-leading a Bible study in high school and there was uh, someone who said, I really want to I want to be able to share. I want to teach one day. And I said, great, let's do that. And the person came and they basically just said like, hey, I'm going to talk about prayer, but instead of talking about it, let's just pray. And so, you know, we prayed for like three minutes and it was done. I was like, really? That's it? That's what we're doing today? That was your thing? I don't think that that's what Jesus is advocating for here, but I do wonder if part of the practice of not already having a pre-prepared thing is creating this openness so that our response 
especially to this group of people that are having this oppression, this persecution put on them, won't be to automatically mirror that same type of oppression and violence and greed that they are being received, receptive towards but instead to create this openness where God can begin to stir their imagination, our imagination about a different way, a nonviolent way that we can respond. How might the name of Jesus, which we hear throughout this passage, guide us and ground us in chaotic and troubling times? Just this past week, Father James Martin had his second audience with Pope Francis. James Martin has written a book and continues to tirelessly advocate uh, within the Catholic Church on behalf of the LGBT Catholics and asking for relationships of respect and compassion and sensitivity between the church and the LGBT community. And he had a 45-minute uh, meeting with the Pope in the Papal Library in the Vatican, and he's not telling us anything about what happened uh, in that, but said it was a very warm meeting full of lots of laughter. But James Martin continues to advocate for this, even though many within the Catholic Church, even many who are in the clergy of the Catholic Church, uh, continue to harass him, to speak evil of him, to suggest that he is this insidious force within the Catholic Church. But he continues to do what he knows is right because he believes that's what it is to live out the name of Jesus, right? In our passage, Jesus has talked about, there are gonna be many people that are saying my name. They're gonna have like the team Jesus jersey on, but they're not it. They're missing it. They're not embodying the way, the practice, the heart of Jesus for the world. This nonviolent forgiven one who is slain as a victim, but who rises to show that even the worst that the empire can deal to us cannot ultimately stop what God is up to in the world. And so it makes me think of the question, what is essential about your life that you must not betray in challenging times, right? Because whenever we are stressed, whenever we are anxious, we are likely to default to sort of the very lowest common denominator and perhaps to compromise some of the ways we would want to be in the world. I think that's even in verse 19 when it says, by your endurance, you will gain your souls. I don't think this means some way of like earning your place with God, but saying if you can hold on to what is truest about who God created you, which is that you were meant for love and to be loved, that you were meant for mutuality and community and to support one another. If you can endure through that, then that which is most essential about you is going to be there for you. You will not have given it up. Let us pray. God, help us to move from being enamored with spectacle. May we be curious about the shiny, the powerful and impressive as well as the scary, the violent, and intimidating, consuming our thoughts, dreams, time, and energy. Help us to see more clearly what we struggle to name inside ourselves. May we see destructive systems more plainly, and with widow persistence, work and pray for justice. May we hold space for unknowing the gridlock and violence around us, and find guidance and grounding in embodying your name. We pray this in the name of the one who sets things right, 
the nonviolent forgiving victim, and spirit who animates us as we pause. Amen. <laughs>